What's the solution that's going to produce the wow? Um, it's the problem, and, and the, you told me the people you've interviewed recently, all of whom I know, and I think we all have the same problem. It's not enough to be good. They're not coming to hire you for a good job. They're coming to hire you for a great job. So that implies risk. And I think one of the issues we all have in this profession, if you're going to work at the top, is how much risk. Welcome to the Light Lounge, the first podcast for lighting designers, creatives, and designers who work with light. My name is Thomas Mich. Welcome back to the Light Lounge. I am very excited, especially because this week I speak with the fantastic Charles Stone, president of Fisherman and Stone, or also known under the abbreviation FMS. Well, what can I say? FMS has been established in 1971 and over the decades of experience they have accumulated a history of working on over 5,000 projects, working with 1,200 clients and having won hundreds of awards through their excellent work and design excellence. We spoke about what it takes to stay relevant, what it takes to establish and to maintain a company to set the company and the culture up for success for now and for the future, especially in a time when companies and potential clients actually get in-house architects and in-house lighting designers. So how do we stay relevant that lighting designers still have to take risks and what it involves? Why fashion also can be a part of uh, success for a lighting designer. And I think this episode is very valuable for young lighting designers, but also and probably especially because of the wealth of experience for other lighting design business owners. And we start as always from the beginning. And now please welcome Charles Stone. Well, I always say I, I was 11. And my parents took me to the local, well, the Harrisburg Community Theater in an attempt to keep me from becoming a juvenile delinquent. And I walked onto the stage and that was it. So I did, in fact, as many of us in the profession will tell you, it was the theater that drew us to it. And right. that is reflected in the way we built this studio. Because we have some portion, it might be a third, It might be more sometimes, but approximately, you know, a, a good population of, the, of all the designers here started in the theater, or at least that was their first love. Right. Do you think this is a quality that um, should be reintroduced or also have a focus on education, where people just, just come? Well, there's a good reason why they don't let me participate in the hiring process. Uh, because if I look in their eyes and see sparkle and interest, okay, remember I would never get a job at this company or frankly almost any other company you're talking to because I was an English major. Right. And in fact, I wrote about lighting and was fascinated by that aspect of it. Uh, I, think, I think what you're asking is very interesting. There isn't time. I, I serve on a curriculum committee at Penn State. Mm -hmm. It's fun, and the big lesson for me has been if you put something in, you have to take something out. So if you decided you wanted to include a theatrical lighting module for students in an AE program, 
that's all well and good, but what will you take out? You'll take out some quantitative study or some survey course about architecture or we, we can never quite figure out. And, and of course, what happens is every year there's more and more published about light. There's more to learn. Frankly, LEDs are more complicated than any of the light sources I grew up with. I think that's a fair statement. And Absolutely. so yes. how do we fit all this into a learning and educational setting? Okay, that's a bigger question. It's, it's Let, pretty let's, big. Let's maybe let's maybe for the beginning start stick to sort of the sort of the timeline of like starting in theater and maybe being 11 years old. Um, what were sort well, of well? It worked. I, <laughs> I did not become a juvenile delinquent. <laughs> yeah, exa exactly. I don't have an arrest record, nor have I served time. But it could have gone other ways. Absolutely. So, the f what what were sort of your first tasks in the theater? Um, of being 11 years old and observing. To carry this stuff over here to over there, <laughs> okay. and uh, this is a gel, a theatrical gel, and of course that would have been about 1966, and I think we had real gelatin gel in the drawers, and of course that's all gone through plastics and polyesters. I don't know even how, what it's made of today. Right, but. You learn so much uh, from day one. And, and, and an 11-year-old is fascinated that a, a gel could be called bastard amber. <laughs> and yeah. the story they went with it. And I think still today, some of the, the gels and the color descriptions have like these beautiful, colorful explanations. Yeah. Well, coming here in 1983 and joining Jules and Paul, Jules still has blues that are that designers know, oh, Jules uses that blue. Right. Uh, it happens to be blues with, he likes blues with no green in them. Not to say that he doesn't like the other blues. And so we learn. And much of finding the right blue light has to do with what source you're using and what filter method you'll use. And that is a whole little subset of learning. It's interesting how like a color can how you can build your own identity um, in the in we have with light that you just you say okay I really like this one particular blue not that I'm discriminating all the other blues but this is a right. part that I really like well that's very true and now I'm reminded to ask Jules why there isn't one in the catalog called mm -hmm. Jules Fisher Blue I think he earned it Ed, I'm going to ask him later today yeah that sounds like a good deal so you were sort of um, in the theater environment for a couple of years, um, yeah, um, carrying things from A to B, but also probably... I don't think I knew there was anything such as architectural lighting, and there hardly was, frankly. Right. Until, I guess, until I'd graduated from university. Right. Did you, so you work in the theater environment, did you already look specifically, so you later then went to Princeton um, to study, you mentioned, an English major with like a focus about lighting? Was it? I was not known for my academic excellence, but fortunately some of it might have rubbed off. But you're touching on an interesting, going back to your first question about how should we, or, or should one consider more theater training and theater lighting training To be a whole, to be the whole lighting designer, right? Uh, to, to to create, to bring students up to be whole lighting designers. Well, yes, I'm sure we should do that. The great advantage is that when you put your hands on theatrical instruments and you're actually, everybody knows this. I'm, I'm not 
telling, saying anything that is new. When you hold that light fixture in your hands, you're actually able to shape the light, literally shape the light by manipulating the mechanical devices on the fixture, swinging it around and playing with the dimmer, playing with color changing. Now suddenly you're in a world where you have immediate learning happening and right. you're, you're literally calibrating your eyes and your brain and your hands right. all around the light. Now you can't do that in a textbook. The, the problem has been that people would come to us with only theatrical lighting training. Well, sometimes I have the feeling they think they know all about lighting design, and they do, except that they don't know much about the quantities. And just because you've read a lot of plays and done lighting for them doesn't mean you know the top 50 architects in the world and what they're interested in. So there's a, I think there's a, it's a much bigger, lighting is a much bigger profession. You know, before you turned the mic on, we talked about for a minute how the uh, profession is relatively small. And yet, I think that doesn't give credit to the influence. Of course not, no. It's and, and all of the, all of the adjunct professions that handle light, so many of those people aren't, don't have any training, even self-training. And that's quite a challenge and an interesting one. Right. I am rambling. And that's that's totally fine because that that's sort of what we're here for. So being then now at Princeton and you were basically consumed by light, having sort of your theater interest made into like a great deal of experience and then you were reading about light but then you sort of invented yourself or did you convince your uh, your faculty to give you a very specific certificate? I did. Uh, I don't know if I... I don't think I was the first to have this certificate, but there was a small number. Mm -hmm. It could be smaller than 10 in those several years when there was a professor who's long gone now, Dan Seltzer was his name, and he wanted to create all aspects of a theater program at Princeton. Now, this has come to fruition, oh my almost 50 years after he said it. And part of that was to recruit student, recruit high school kids who were active in the theater as part of the, the strange cauldron. Before admission scandals, there were other ways of attracting students. Right. Anyway, so there I was. I was one of those kids who had, I had done, so, I'd done every high school play I could get my hands on and, and get involved in. And I'd been on the stage and backstage, and I had been a reader of poetry, and I had won awards, and I, all of that kind of stuff. But what I was really interested in was lighting, which is, I think, surprised everyone, great to the, great, uh, to the great dismay of my parents, probably, at the time. We will we will come to that later. Um, so the just for everyone to bring everyone on board, the certificate was called. I, I have it written down here. It was um, help me please. Uh, it was called the certificate was called uh, for it was like for lighting design in theater and dance. Something like that. The program and that's right for a certificate for lighting design in theater and dance. Oh yes, and in that regard, I certainly was the first one. There were other people getting a certificate in theater and dance before there was such a program because Princeton at that time w would teach no skills. The idea of a liberal arts education was that you would learn nothing of use. Right. Uh, perhaps how to think and express yourself. Right. And uh, that was supposed to be 
a good education. I, I think it might have been. Well, I guess I was the first certificate, and I yes, I made the whole thing up. Is this sort of the entrepreneurial spirit that you potentially... Um, It's easy to say that now, isn't it? Right. But, I mean, you probably have tried to um, not to be part of the game and blend in. You have tried to just make made your interest sort of to your path. Is this fair to say? Um, to the extent that I'm disruptive about authority, yes. <laughs> yeah. I had a conversation here in the office uh, just, I think it might have been yesterday, with some of our rising leadership. Uh -huh. And it's procedural, process, procedural stuff. Yeah. And I reminded uh, this person that we made the whole thing up. <laughs> to a great extent, I made the whole thing up about uh, what the titles mean and what the uh, structure should be and how, what, is, what constitutes a team and what do they do. So it's... Uh, subject to revision to, for a better idea at any moment, which is the advantage of making it up. It probably isn't set in stone anywhere. I think, yeah, that's, that's, I think that's a big deal of truth that, of course, nothing is set in stone, but it's sometimes hard to um, keep sort of the poetry and the, the magic of light alive when you have to think about so many different things like the technologies and the difficulties, difficulties that come with it. You... I read somewhere you received a letter from uh, Sylvan Schimmitz. He that's a, that's a true story. Yeah. He um, he explained or he just laid out the different types of speed in different projects. Well, he was a great. Uh, looking back, I have to say I saved the letter. I have it in a notebook of those things. And those listening who don't know, he founded a company called Elliptopar. Um, which is a play on words of a parabolic ellipse, which is what you do to take a tubular source and create an asymmetric wash of light. Before refraction lenses and LEDs, that's what you did. You put the source in a reflector. And uh, he created a company that's still around and still and has done very well at, at uh, his daughter carries on and, and Ali has created products that, that uh, carry on in the same spirit but the the point is I went to interview for a job not knowing I had no idea what to do and he had a company he had two companies he had the manufacturing company and then I guess it was Sylvan Schimmitz lighting design or something mm -hmm. maybe it had another name I don't remember but I went to see him and I didn't get the job but he wrote me that letter he wrote me a letter that said he said consider the difference between a career in the theater and a career in architectural lighting is that Uh, theater shows last for four days or maybe 40 weeks and when you design for a building you're hoping for 40 years at least and words to that effect excellent advice and excellent uh, reminder of the role of time right and what I like to say and here I'm cribbing from Dave DeLora a professor a retired professor from uh, University of Colorado who taught lighting to mm -hmm. generations of students Uh, David always asked me, well, what does the role of memory in lighting design? And I think Cy was, when he wrote me that letter, was uh, clipping the corners of that whole thinking because time plays a part and it does have an influence on how you approach a project. If it's gone in practical ways as well as sort of more interesting philosophical ways. 
Right. Do you do you think in the conversation or in the in the in the interview you had with him, you made an appearance of being uh, more interested in fast pace or in? That's another good question. I don't know. I had shoulder length hair, probably. I I I don't know. I I I, I can't remember. But I I think when I when I got these various interviews, which I look on it now and I wonder how I got them. Mm. Uh, but I think it, I, I, my recollection is it was easy. I actually think it probably was because if somebody calls you and wants to do exactly what you do, of course you're going to see them. How many people did you pass on the street this morning like that? None. And that's, I, I always say to people who come here, to young people, I say, I know that I'm, you know how I measure my success? Do you know how I'm, I'm sure I'm successful? And the answer is because when I got up this morning, I couldn't wait to get over here to talk to you. And there you have it. So if you turn 30, 40, 50, 60, and you still like what you do, you must be successful. It has nothing to do with fame and fortune. Because if you're not happy, I'm extremely happy. So that's, uh, that all ties together in the time question as well. So the interview didn't work out, or the, the job interview no, didn't, 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 didn't the work job. out? No. How did you proceed? How did you... I must have gone somewhere else. <laughs> I got rejected uh, all over the place until I, uh, a good friend, uh, Bill Lockwood, who I had worked for at Princeton in McCarter Theater. I was his uh, lackey. Uh, he, he planned the programming for... He created mostly Mozart, He planned the programming uh, at Lincoln Center for 25 years, all the special events. Wow. Um, knew all the musicians, still does, around the world, and did this at McCarter Theater in Princeton. And I was his assistant for a couple of years. And uh, I was the guy that ordered up the piano and made <sighs> sure that the timing was correct on the stage calls and that sort of thing. But he said, you ought to go meet Claude Engel in Washington. Right. And sent me to, uh, Claude was giving a lecture uh, at the Princeton campus. And I went to the lecture and I hung around after and just like with my side gave me the interview, this guy walks up and says, hi, I'm Charles and uh, Bill Lockwood said I should talk to you and I really want to talk to you. And, and he said, sure, when are you coming to visit me in Washington? But I do remember going to the interview and I showed up on time in a suit, probably 10 o'clock in the morning. And he didn't see me until 5.30. Because so of the suit? No, because it was he was busy. And I suppose, looking back on it, maybe that was the test. Will he stay all day, or would he just walk away in disgust? So, so I got a job, and uh, I still... We all wore suits, it's hard to imagine, uh, for a long time. That was uh, 1980. How, how do you approach it in your office? You mean... You clearly don't wear a suit, but... Well, uh, some years ago, and it's, it's maybe 15 or 20, it's probably 20 years ago, we didn't get a project we interviewed for. And it was the third time this had happened in, uh, it was California. And I was friendly with the architect to, to whom we had made the proposal. Mm -hmm. And she told me months later, oh, well, they liked your firm and they liked you, but you were the most corporate-looking of the interviewees for the project, and they decided that was too corporate. Like California was going a different direction. 
So then for a number of years, I wore these shirts that looked rather priestly. You remember them? They had no collars, and you buttoned them all the way up. Yeah. I had a lot of those. Yeah. And uh, then eventually, I remember I was overseas. I was at a conference, the first Lux Pacifica, which was arranged by an Australian professor named Warren Julian. It was in uh, Nagoya in Japan. And we're all there. He'd collected, uh, I don't know, a dozen lighting designers from around the world. Somehow I got the call. And there was a guy there called uh, Tino Kwan, who still does lighting in Asia. I know Tino. In fact, we've worked together once or twice. And we're all these young guys, and he was wearing Armani black. And I I was drawn to it not so much because that's what everybody wears now, black. That was not it. It's because think of how little was in his suitcase. Yeah. So all of my friends roll their eyes at this, but I am known the world over for being the guy with the smallest bag. And suddenly... And I thought, ah, that's the way. Just get black and figure it all out. And so no suit. And now I wear, I dress appropriately for the client. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I think one might think that this conversation is kind of arbitrary, but I think it's actually very important because it all ties into the bigger understanding of how what kind of signals do we send how do we communicate to clients what sure. kind of values do we represent and how do our clients perceive us in in, in that case with the suit as something uh, too corporate where well i'm always a little rumpled anyway <laughs> i didn't i didn't look that good and i don't look that good in a suit i'm always a little rumpled they can't fix me up well i think authenticity is a big part of it but of course um Yeah, there is there is something to it, the value of light, and we will come to come to it a little bit later again um, as well. So, so then you sort of so apparently the letter from um, from Sai Sai is correct, right? I pronounce it right. Sylvan Schimitz called Sai. Sylvan Schimitz called Sai. Passed away not too many years ago. So apparently his letter about time and speed and a different persistence of your work in the world had made an impact on you and then you sort of made the transition more into the architectural environment with Claude. Um, True, but it also had to do with opportunity, where, where, where I saw the opportunities. I don't remember the year exactly, but about the same time the movie All That Jazz came out. I haven't seen it. What, well, what is it about? It's a Bob Fosse movie and uh, and... It's about overdoing it and having the heart attack. And, of I course, understand. the theater will drive you there quickly. And, actually, Jules Fisher has a cameo. He's doing the lighting really? for the show in the, within the show. Unbelievable. And, uh, and I, I think at the time I, I realized that maybe the life in the theater in the long term wasn't for me. I had opportunities to go on the road with the circus, believe it or not, or rock and roll as a roadie. And I just didn't think those things were going to be right for me. It looked like fun, and it's, it would seem like a lot of money at the time because you get paid by the week, and they right. pay you a lot because you work seven days. But I didn't think it was... I, didn't think, I, I think I realized it wasn't going to make me happy in the long run. Mm-hmm. So th- I think that, as well as the... The time scale of architecture and an interest in art, that drew me to think more broadly than theater. Right. Not, that's not fair to the theater, to think in other medium. Yeah. 
So everyone who knows uh, Claude Engel and everyone who's listening, I assume, are lighting designers and who does not know him, did go now and look him up because his projects are, they couldn't be more known, larger in terms of scale, but also in, 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 in a very, very subtle quality that is, for me, absolutely outstanding. That's true, but there was a... There was a group of these characters, um, and in fact, most of them were in the room when the IALD was founded mm -hmm. at the Algonquin Hotel, mm -hmm. at the bar, I presume. And there's something like 15 original members. And, and Claude was one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, but you had a collection of real interesting characters. Uh, in addition to uh, Paul Morantz, you had... Uh, Jules Horton, David Mintz, um, Leslie Wheel, and in Japan, Motoko Ishii, and I think probably Motoko and Leslie were pioneers for women in lighting, uh, maybe some others. Derek Phillips, who just passed away a few years ago from the UK. And, you know, my, my career has spanned the years when I met all these guys and gals and saw their work, have been to some of their projects with them in many countries. So that, I'm, a pretty, I'm the luckiest guy walking because, well, it's been explained to me, lighting was, after World War II, lighting education had a hiccup. And so the profession, you, know, you, could, you might credit Richard Kelly um, making it possible to have a profession again mm -hmm. of independent lighting design. So lighting designers that aren't selling product, or shall I say product salesmen who aren't doing the lighting for free while they sell your product. Right. That still exists all over the world. And all the people's names I've said, and indeed our practice, we're all working at the, certainly in the top half of projects that even think about having someone help with the lighting design, and probably in the top quarter or quintile. Right. Uh, because who else would pay for someone to do that? but they're only the best projects. How was, how was the spirit of these 15 sort of, like, um, yeah, characters that... Well, they're just normal people, but they all had different stories about how they came to lighting, some of, some of which I know. And some had engineering backgrounds, some were salesmen and decided, you know, it was more fun to be the lighting designer. Right. Um, and some had... Uh, those are, Just as there is today, and I find it very strange, but it's true that you go to any lighting conference in the world and all the lighting designers are also nice to each other and we like each other and there's this strange camaraderie. Uh, and strange is a fair word for it. And it's quite enjoyable. Uh, I have the additional privilege of having been the president of the association, the International Association of Lighting Designers, and That gave me even greater uh, access to so many people, and I made so many friends. And I've been all around the world and see them. And have actually, we've collaborated with, we started to count yesterday. We were looking up something. More than a dozen firms have collaborated with us on projects around the world, even in the U.S. once or twice. But, and I say that simply because one of the primary reasons for collaboration is you're dealing in another culture regulatory situation, uh, local environment, mm -hmm. and, and it adds 
uh, argument adds to the argument that we ought to collaborate. Right. And and, and that does happen too. So, so it's been interesting to watch this go from a few dozen practitioners to a few hundred to well, I think we're we're well over a thousand legitimate independent lighting designers in the world. Right. And that's fascinating. I've seen that in my lifetime. Do you think everyone that everyone is so friendly is this a a, a positive um, is it this a positive thing or should we be also be maybe more I don't want to say edgy but maybe more distinct in Oh, I'd rather the way it is than not. I appreciate it very much. Yeah. Um, I, well, you saw it in your in your days right. uh, uh, working in consulting. Uh, it's it's a little strange to explain to people who haven't experienced it. Yeah. And that's good fun. I would rather have that than not have it. And it's. I think that the challenge has been, we count our studios in Seattle and New York, make a business. So we are artists. We are innovators. We are scientists. And we are also business people. And we combine all that together. Right. Otherwise, we, we've been here almost 50 years. Yeah. And we didn't do that by making bad business decisions or ugly projects. So that's, I think you have to have a balance with that. I think that's sometimes missing in our feel-good parties in the lighting industry. I mean, having said that, I'd still rather have the parties than not have them. I understand. But there is... And I think it's it makes sense that we sort of maybe I'm I'm simplif oversimplifying here, but maybe it makes sense to stick together as long as possible until we have like our base is much stronger until people can maybe more diversify. Well, I think that's a good argument, but maybe we should stick together anyway. Maybe we're a different kind of profession altogether. I'm on the same page. I was just trying to challenge no, I, the I, good feel part. I like the I'm word actually. I think we can make this work. I, I, I would like to see more. Under, I think I paid my dues, and I'm proud of it, and I'm grateful for it. And I, I, it, it disappoints me when I see people with two or three years, ex years experience leave a practice, a bigger practice, and set up their own shop. And it disappoints me because they don't know what they're missing. And I've had the, I mean, I've studied with Jules, Paul, primarily Paul, and those early few years, three years, only three years with Claude. And again, I'm the luckiest guy walking. If you work for the best, you're going to learn a couple of things. And I, if I had a message to the young uh, designers listening, it would be, I, you can't tell someone to be patient. That's, that's terrible. But on the other hand, There's value in those early years of, of making coffee, and we used to go make copies. We don't do that anymore. And there's value in that, and there's value in hanging around late at night and watching the design happen. Right. And, and I think that gets f sometimes forgotten, perhaps. Right. They, people get restless and go off and start their own business, and they can compete very well, and they're cheap, and, uh, and it drags a whole profession down in a way in an interesting way because mm. it averages down the level of expertise. And I see it at the other side. I go into a meeting and the expectation is low in some areas and it should be much higher. 
So we were having to reset expectations. That's very interesting. So now, and we are already way deeper in our conversation, but at, a, at some point... We've you, fallen off your outline, I'm that's, pretty sure. I, it's, um, it's totally fine. Disaster. Um, I, uh, that's totally fine. Um, um, so then after, after Claude Engel, you, yeah, you met um, Paul Morantz and Jules Fischer. Well, I met a girl, too, and, and uh, we've been married for 30, uh-oh, four years, something like that. And uh, she was in New York and I was in Washington. We had the Amtrak romance. <laughs> What is that? That's when you ride the train every weekend. Oh, God, I understand, yeah. And I had reasons to come to New York and, and her family are all in the movie business. So before I knew it, I had introductions around. And most of these people had no use for me. But I uh, had several introductions, and then I then I finally got serious about doing my own research. And indeed, when I got an interview over here, I went the interview here. I had gone to see um, oh dear Uptown. Um, well, a family friend, sent, Kimberly's family's friend, sent me to Danny Franks, who was Emero Fiorentino's. Okay. Uh, partner and you know forever was the guy who did the work and Danny sent me to uh, Roger and they said well we don't have any jobs for you but you should go down and see Jules or Bob Davis who was at the time running the, the, the theater consulting side of this biz, of these collected businesses here mm -hmm. and Bob Davis said well I don't have any work for you but you ought to talk to Jules And so Jules came in, well, I don't have any work for you, but you should talk to Paul. <laughs> so I got passed around. That was in a period of like two days. I got passed around. It was Roger Morgan, sorry. He was a Broadway uh, lighting designer and also consultant. Uh -huh. Because in those days, the guys who were doing the lighting on Broadway and sets, and it still must be true, you know, to really make a living, you needed another, you needed another part of your, of your life to have a different time scale to match up with Broadway and that would typically be consulting right which I guess frankly is what Jules ended up doing here mm -hmm. uh, but I was passed around I hadn't thought that you've got that story out of me I had forgot all about it I don't know if it's that interesting but yeah take the first opportunity and then you get sent to the next guy and so I went down the line like that and I we were over on a block from here at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 18th Street where the office was for many years And then I remember, and then Paul came in, and and I showed I had a giant role as a portfolio, all hand drawings, of course. Well, and I, 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 he doesn't remember, and I try to ask a couple of questions like this because I'm trying to put perspective on it all. But I remember rolling it out, and they were all duly, duly impressed. But when they probably weren't impressed, it was more like, okay, well, this kid can draw a little bit, so we should hire him because we need somebody. <laughs> That's probably the truth of it. And that was fun. So then I, I started work up here in 1983, up here being moving from Washington. I'd been in Washington just three years and two days. Mm -hmm. I just remember that. And then I started here, and uh, one thing led to another, and I'm still here. Do you think you're, and I can clearly tell just by just by looking at you, what kind of an energy you 
you radiate basically that do you think your sort of happiness just loving what you do then propelled you to be becoming partner and now the principal of um maybe FMS? i'm out of control because i really like what i do and now it's changed because quite not only consciously i mean some of us getting older and evolving and learning how to grow up but also consciously we are in in a process here to bring up the younger generations uh to the word is not delegate uh it is not distribute it is uh empower really so that you said early when you were introducing me that i run a company i really don't if i'm running the company it's we have a problem You're so they all run the company and i try to help a little that's really important that's quite different from running the company and i think the co you could be a consulting business and disappear when you retire or bad things happen to you and that would be that and there's i'm sure we could just fill your notebook with examples of that but to create a so if i'm second generation we're into the third and fourth generation here and that's not accidental that takes work so I, that's that's one of the things i work on every day that's fun too that sounds i i i'm i need to process this a little bit because i think there's it's so rich what you just said about how yeah how to empower people if you are sort of all the time like emergency managing and managing people micromanaging then and you don't seem like the micromanager at all uh, that's probably you are in the position you are um i used to be and i still know i'll drive them crazy with the detail i know but that's just showing off mostly <laughs> the um but what you say is exactly right and i'm i'm learning this and we're practicing it and we're putting it in place structurally in our own organization that's too strong a word the process of and, and it fits with the times actually more importantly actually it fits with the changing world um and what do i mean well there's screens everywhere well i embrace that you just walk around the office you'll see that right nathan gave you a tour i mm -hmm. assume so we've just completed a renovation around here which is geared to the future every decision we made in the renovation was about was not about me but what i think it should be is about what we judged to be part of a future thinking firm we and what we needed to be like what what do we look like in five years and what does the office look like to support that so everything from the acoustical treatments you've seen to lots of big screens and different kinds of collaboration spaces well we all do it in our work anybody that works uh in what do they call it the office workspace mm -hmm. environment is hearing this and and doing it all the time and so are we we have and in fact so many of the ideas that are on display here in our little renovation which for those listening is not particularly high end it has a rough and tumble loft midtown uh charm yeah well i i never thought of it as charming but we cleaned it up and painted it okay it's charming that it's yeah. painted but yeah. it's rough i mean there're not a lot of finished ceilings etc yeah. but my point is the the things we have done are all about the future to 
because when I bring a young person through the office who might end up working here, you'd whether they get the job or not, you'd like them to say, wow, that, that place was cool. I could work there. Yeah. And that's pretty, that's hard to figure out. We had fun doing it. You probably don't like the description, but I think this is setting up your your company or your team for the future and trying to um, just try to help where you are. I think this describes like the position of a great leader of a company. Well, that remains to be seen, but um, it's a combination of what's best for the company and generally speaking, that's what's best for me. So there's self-interest involved too. And I... I can't say it on the radio, but I have an expression that I use uh, that goes something like this, where you know, someday you, you leave this earth and you, you would like your colleagues to come stand around and remember you for one last few minutes while they lower the box, right? What would you like them to be doing? Remembering that you were good to them? Yeah. Uh, and in every possible way? Or something else? So, and that doesn't motivate me every morning, but, you know, it, you might as well try to get it right. Right. So we already touched base on what sort of success means for you, and maybe we can, and probably everything is uh, learning and we are approaching sort towards the end, but everything, of course, you probably would, would approach as a learning, but have there been moments where you thought, wow, this is a challenging time where you really had to think about how do I solve this and how... For sure. Daily. Daily, really. How to, how to solve a lighting problem, how to... Uh, what's the best... What's the solution that's going to produce the wow? Um, It's the problem, and, and the, you told me the people you've interviewed recently, all of whom I know, and I think we all have the same problem. It's not enough to be good. They're not coming to hire you for a good job. They're hiring, coming to hire you for a great job. So that implies risk. And I think one of the issues we all have in this profession, if you're going to work at the top, is how much risk And it could be as simple as should I wash that wall in this manner or that technical solution, you know, mm -hmm. which it could be as simple as that. Uh, or do I really want to use this particular adjustable um, magical LED source in this, in this environment of salt water? Are they going to be calling me in six months? You know, it's, but it would be the best lighting solution. So there are practicalities and design, that, that tension I think is uh, interesting. I mean, that's what, what's so interesting, but it's also daily challenge as, as stressful. But these seem like very controllable risks, right? Because the yeah, worst thing... It looks thing that way when they work out. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But of course, the worst thing can happen is like a financial risk you take. Have there been things where you thought, wow, okay, this is sort of beyond financial risk? Well, we run a tight ship, so what does that mean? Uh, in all ways, in uh, we know what it costs to do it, and if people don't want to pay us to do it, then we won't be we won't be doing that job. 
Right. Uh, and you have to calibrate that against what the market will, will be interested in. Um, financial risk on a design decision, well, we have some serious internal procedures to prevent errors. And they work pretty well. Yeah. And they've been polished over many years. Right. And I'm absolutely fanatical about them. Would you agree that the fees for the design consultants are still could still rise in order to allow for more exploration, for more research, for more development, in order to be maybe not always like on the edge and maybe a little bit more sort of on the forefront to develop things? Or well, is this oh, actually oh, the case for you? Or Well, I, I share that sentiment exactly um, that you pose. However, I think there's a much larger thing going on. Uh, you see it as big companies essentially become their own architects. Some big tech companies mm -hmm. and other companies mm -hmm. are bringing it all in-house by purchasing architecture firms and other service firms. That You have that happening. You have the the expected benefits of Revit. Uh, you have uh, the expected benefits of the all-LED world. So there are a lot of pressures that all come back to fees. I don't sit around worrying much about it. It, has, it is a limit to growth. I, I think it, I would say that it has limited... I can't speak for the whole profession. I can only speak for our business. It limits our ability to grow because there's only so much work at the top. Right. And I, I do think that is the case and has been for some time and continues to be. Or maybe I'm just not very good at growing. I don't know which is true. And maybe this is, a again, like a larger conversation to have to sort of determine the value of light we bring to projects and you said in another interview that the client only determines sort of the success of your work if he likes it or not or well that's what he we all say we all say that's the only metric that matters is it true well of course it's true so you have to offer something more and we do because there is there is this sort of magical moment of light that is really, really, it's not tangible. People can feel it, but do you then? Do you then just, or I mean, just you back it up by your reference, by your portfolio, or by the way you communicate to the client that you bring? Probably all of those things. Hmm. I, I wish I knew the secret sauce. I think you, you. We've, we've built studios in Seattle and New York that have people who are passionate about the work and excellence, and they are committed to it at a very high level of better than satisfactory completion. And except for the fact that they're all lighting designers and have the same attributes we've been discussing about liking other lighting designers and light, mm -hmm. We all have the same pair of eyes, and uh, our brains and eyes kind of work the same way. I think the different differentiators are not so much... Yes, there is such a thing as better design, good design, appropriate design, and we try to do that. At the same time, if you can't back it up with a 
process and a team that is happy, um, learning, changing, innovating, it won't last. So the thing that we have that nobody else has is, and there's a book on the table here, is a legacy of projects. It's not one year or 10 years, it's a long time. And it's not, I don't think we're smarter than anybody else. I think we've got some pieces of the puzzle put together exactly right in the way that we operate as a studio, our design processes, the way we talk to and listen to clients. And yes, maybe we are pretty good at the right chemistry of research and and studying precedent and listening to the architect. Maybe we're good at those things too. But I think we're only good at them because it's part of our process. So that's a point of view. In terms of communication, and we are about to finish the interview because I, I could continue for a long time with you, but I want to be mindful with your time. In terms of communication, what would you tell your 11-year-old self? Looking back, would you say... I should have studied harder. <laughs> what, what studied? I probably should have... I don't have a master's Or degree. I probably should have gone and gotten some kind of master's in art or maybe lighting. That's what I would tell myself. Because you can't... It's too late now. I'm not doing it now. Well, you probably study... I really wasn't that good at school, okay? <laughs> you, said, you said you were not known for to what? be a good student. What were you known for? Being in the theater. Being in the theater. Well, that's maybe m more worth and more education than a, sh a school can offer. Oh, you can say that now. They couldn't say it then. So, But I wrote all of the major term papers in college, and they were all a way to... They were really writing about light, which, of course, made them, as you have used the word, authentic. So I managed to pass. Right. So after... Your, after your parents sent you into theater in order not that you become like a, a criminal or you end up in prison, then you were in theater and oh, in lighting. every night. And they had to come pick me up at midnight. I was 12. And they, they had doubts that you would make like a living out of it. Oh, how long, I'm, how I'm, long sure, <laughs> I'm sure they did. It wasn't until I was... My parents used to say at Christmas or uh, holidays when I would go visit them. And I really left. I went to to Princeton uh, young. I was 17. Um, I guess I was clever on the test. But I, um, I would go see them and they would say, don't you, my mother would just blurt it out. Don't you want to go to medical school or business school, whatever it was. All, everyone in the family, everyone in the family is a lawyer, a counselor, except me. So they all thought, oh, well, maybe he'll eventually come around and go to law school. Well, none of these things happened. I was 40, I was just turning 40, and w actually Kimberly was with me and we were in Australia, and I had a meeting coinciding with my parents going on a trip, they're world travelers. I have the travel gene from my parents. And they're alive and well as I speak this morning, and they have just slowed down from traveling at the age of 91 and 92. Wow. They, they had just reached a point where it's just a little too much to drag the suitcases. <laughs> But 
Anyway, there we were, and I, the architects I was working with, uh, some of them had second jobs, I guess, and one of them, he, I guess he was friends with or he was working in the restaurant at the Park Hyatt, which had a fantastic view of the Sydney Opera House. So I took my parents and some of their friends to dinner in a slightly elevated kind of large bay window with a big round table with a view of the Opera House. And there I was on work with my wife with me. And so this is 25 years ago. And my mom, that night, she said to, for everyone to hear, she said, well, I guess it's okay if you <laughs> stay with this lighting. <laughs> a, I love that story. That's amazing. Well, I think you clearly made it uh, from moving uh, park hands from A to B and now, yeah, having worked on all these amazing projects and um, I... I which none of which we even spoke of. And I think that's okay because, of course, we want to hear what's and who's involved in the amazing projects like the tallest building in the world in Dubai. But I think there's a different, like a much deeper quality well, that you goes know, into... That's a good example to talk about for a moment in the following way. We won an award for it, or a couple maybe, and that's all very nice. But when they came and said, well, we'd like to include everyone, we have a policy that if, you don't, if you're not working here when we win the award, you're not going to be on it. That's, our, that's my policy. Mm -hmm. I can explain that in detail. It's serious stuff. But anyway, we did count the number of people who worked on the project, who'd had their hands on it. Now, the... The young guy who did most of the work happens to be our associate principal, Kevin Frary, in the Seattle, who runs our Seattle office. Mm -hmm. uh, but 32 people worked on the project. So when you think of these large, and I'm looking at the book on the table, the larger projects in there, it's not one or two, it's not Paul Marantz or me or a couple of people, it's 10 or 20 or even 30 people who worked on it. And That's significant in this conversation, which has at times talked a little bit about process, and you've mentioned leadership and studio and longevity and legacy. Right. Well, in order to make that happen, think of what we had to teach those 30 people and think of the consistency required and, and the single-minded single purpose of concept and error checking and all the things that go into getting to excellence. Right. So when you look at those big projects, I never, I hardly ever associate them with one person. Even the ones, Paul Marantz's long history of working one-on-one -on -one with I.M. Pei, and yet, if Paul were here and looking at, sitting, he's probably down the hall, if he were sitting here looking at the book with us and, and look at some of the Pei, Pei Cobb Fried, I.M. Pei projects, You know, it's quite interesting because he would start talking about the five other people in the office who worked on it. Right. Uh, so we have a way of thinking about that, which is, sure, I, I've enjoyed some uh, visibility, and yes, I represent the, I carry the flag. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think we're a little different that way. Some of the other practices you've mentioned, I have the depth, what do they call it in sports, a deep bench. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I'm very proud of because they've all done it right. and we're very aware of that when we talk about the work we leave it at that Charles it was an absolute pleasure and everyone who's listening I can only yeah um, 
I, I hope the amazing the, the amazing company came through and the personality came through the conversation. I have only my highest recommendation and I'm truly impressed and I am grateful as well as a big part of being I don't know, not successful, but I'm very grateful and thankful for the conversation at the time. Thanks for your time and everybody, thanks for listening. Thank you so much. And that was the amazing conversation I had with Charles Stone, president of Fisher Morant Stone. And I could not be more excited. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, because being in Charles' environment could not be more inspiring through his energy and experience accumulated in the sense of lighting, but also in business and creating and influencing people. Okay, so my top three in the lighting design uh, of lighting design projects that FMS has influenced and shaped in the world. Number one is, of course, the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world with SOM. I think it doesn't get higher than that. Number two is, I think, a project that cannot be topped or overcome in terms of meaning how powerful lighting is and how powerful lighting can be to communicate meaning, love, hope, unity, that we are all one in one world. I'm, of course, talking about the National September 11th Memorial Museum. I speak about the plaza. I speak about how the lighting is integrated into the two voids that are filled with water and light, basically. Uh, absolutely fantastic and amazing and if you should be in New York please go and check it out because here the true power of light is transformed in its best um, in one place okay and then the last but not least number three is the public hotel that I absolutely love I think the wow effect Charles spoke about is there one of the strongest when you enter the place approaching the escalator like the sequence of experience absolutely amazing I hope you enjoyed this week's Light Lounge. And if you haven't done so, please check into the other episodes that are online. Very excited to speak to you next week again. And so long. Please stay lit. <laughs>